Hello, misfits. This is Kate. And this is Kevin. Welcome to Horrorwood. Every lyric to every every Taylor song. Swift song that there is out there, <laughs> which he's not even a Swifty. He I'm says I'm not even this. Well, he claims claims. Now I'm scared to say that in public. You know what? I I am fully in my Swifty era, and I embrace it. And I watched the Super Bowl last night, mm-hmm. and I was like, if the Chiefs don't win, I will be very sad. Even though I literally just started watching football like mm-hmm. three weeks ago. Could you imagine all the like 13 year olds out there who if they would have lost like would be scream crying like into a pillow? I mean, I could have been one of them, oh but they won. And uh, I only know that because we're recording this on Monday because I was sick over the weekend when we were supposed it's to record. It's been a rough patch at the... A little bit. Yeah. But I'm feeling a little better. Good. And I'm going to try to have this out by tonight. And that is where we are in our lives, Kevin. And in just like the general, you know, February month. And you know what's in February? (laughs) Valentine's. And if you joined our Patreon before February 1st, you got a little something from us in the mail. A card. And we have new Patronians to shout out. We've got Dana Montaro. In our accomplice tier. Oh, that's right. I know. You're looking at me like, wait, we did this. We didn't. Because it was on the Patreon yeah. episode that we shouted them. I hey, don't Dana. think we did shout them on the Patreon. Anyway, we're doing it now. We're doing it now. And so we've got Dana. And then we also have Becca Durrett, who is one of our Misfit Murderinos. Becca and Dana, thank you so, so much. We truly appreciate your support. Thanks, Becca and Dana. And uh, we hope that everyone is having a good Valentine's week or not. Like, maybe you hate it, and that's totally fine, too. I wish it was Halloween, so there we are. Halloween and Valentine's, I feel, are similar, but just different colors. In what way are they similar? Just lots. If you go to the Walgreens aisle of Valentine's (laughs) stuff, it reminds me of the Halloween aisle. I I don't know what I'm saying. Okay. (laughs) And also, like, those, I like the Reese's uh, hearts and pumpkins. Yes. I don't (laughs) like milk chocolate, but. I didn't know that, Kate. Now you do. And you know what? Apparently, Matt doesn't know it either because he keeps buying me milk chocolate. I'm like, babe, I don't like milk chocolate. You like dark chocolate, Love dark chocolate. Okay, okay, okay. Bring me that dark chocolate. Good to know. I like, I have like a whole thing of that and I'm putting it like behind me right now. I'm like, like, I brought these candy bars, but I guess (laughs) They're actually for me, not you. (laughs) You're just like eating throughout the episode. We hope that you guys are having a delightful week because I'm about to bring you way, way down. This is a rough case and content warning for domestic assault. And I guess we're just going to get right into it. Today we are talking about the death of model and playboy bunny Jasmine Fiore. I've heard her name pronounced Fiore and Fiore, but I think most often I hear it Fiore, so that's what I'm going with Mm -hmm. in this episode. On the morning of August 15, 2009, the body of 28-year-old Jasmine Fiore was found. This is brutal. I just want to warn everybody, and I'm just going to tell you exactly how she was found. 
She was found stuffed inside a suitcase in a dumpster in Buena Park, California, which is about an hour south of Los Angeles. She was nude, and her face was so swollen from being severely beaten that she could not be identified. Oh my God. It is rough. This, I mean, not to push it on another case, but it reminds me a little bit of the one of the lady in the UK that you did. Sally Ann Bowman. Sally Ann Bowman, yeah. Mm -hmm. Equally as like awful and just brutal. That is horrifying. Yes, it is. Police noticed that all 10 of Jasmine's fingers had been cut off Uh, and her teeth had been knocked out. No. And I will go ahead and say that it was determined that occurred after her death. So she did not feel that, if that is any kind of I can't even, like, think about it. Yeah. It was clearly a means used by her killer to conceal her identity. And it would be days before authorities discovered who she was. Oh, that makes sense. Not to, like, but that makes sense. Like, no fingerprints. No dental records. Mm -hmm. Damn. That's fucked up. Eight days after Jasmine's body was found, the body of her husband, Ryan Jenkins, was discovered more than a thousand miles away. What? So settle in, misfits. Here we go. Ah. Jasmine Fiore was born in 1981 in the small town of Bonnie Dune, California. I love that name. Isn't it the best? It is the quaintest sounding name for a town that I have ever heard. It sounds like a Girl Scout cookie name. It does. And the Girl Scout cookies are out in full force right now. So I uh, use native deodorant Mm -hmm. and they have a they have they partnered with Girl Scouts oh. to do like scented deodorant. So you have and Girl Scout wash. scented deodorant. I do. It's my armpits smell S'mores? like uh, no the ones with coconut and chocolate. Oh, that's what I meant. The Samoas. Samoas. That's what it is. Armpits smell like Samoas, and then my whole body because I bought a body wash smells like trefoils. Oh my goodness, Kevin! I I'm... smell like a cookie over here. I'm delicious. Delicious. <laughs> um... Native sponsor us. <laughs> Bonnie Dune is just outside of Santa Cruz in Northern California. It has less than 3,000 residents. It's a very small town. It's beautiful. It it sits a few miles inland from the Pacific Ocean and is surrounded by giant redwood trees and hiking trails. It sounds ideal. I want to go there. Jasmine was an only child and her parents divorced when she was eight years old. According to investigative journalist Mark Ebner, Jasmine's dad walked out on her and her mom, Lisa, leaving Lisa to raise Jasmine alone. According to her friends and family, Jasmine was what they considered a tomboy, which I realize that term is problematic, but it is how they described her. And I looked up to see what is the more appropriate term for tomboy in Mm -hmm. this day and age. All I could find was gender creative or gender nonconforming, which doesn't really seem to fit in this case. That's interesting. I also feel like androgynous is a term as well. Maybe. And and again, I still don't feel like that fits for her. Okay. She was just a girl who was athletic and liked the outdoors. Yeah, That's basically and why what do she we was. Ha- do we have to have a term for exactly. that? Exactly. <laughs> like why I mean it- if you're gender nonconforming or gender queer, that feels like separate, separate. from Separate. Yeah. Yeah. Your likes and dislikes form your identity as well. I don't know. It shouldn't be like It shouldn't be like this like Sexual and gender identity exactly. is linked to 
what yes. she enjoyed. Do you see what I'm saying? Oh, Sorry. I see. Yeah, exactly what you're saying. Yeah. It, so I just wanted to acknowledge that. But that is what they refer to her as. They, she was their little tomboy. Yeah. Jasmine loved sailing boats and riding motorcycles and being in nature. She loved animals, particularly dogs and horses. She rode horses both competitively and just for fun. She was very athletic. She loved to play football with the other kids. She'd throw her blonde hair up in a ponytail, smear some charcoal underneath those eyes, and she was ready to go. What's the reason for doing that? I have no idea. I think it's supposed to make you look tough. Okay. I just never understood why people had those lines right here. I don't know. I'm sure it goes back to some, like, ancient something or other at the beginning of time yeah i don't know what it's from because again remember i know nothing about football except for in the last month i learned a little bit because of taylor swift we'll, Thank you, taylor. we'll tweet taylor and she'll she'll tell she can explain she'll it. yeah she knows so apparently the super bowl did like a nickelodeon broadcast and they had dora the explorer and like nickelodeon characters explain what was happening, like what certain things meant. So if you were watching the Nickelodeon broadcast, like it would explain to kids what was going on. Holy fuck. Where was that 10 years ago? Right? Or sorry, 20 years ago. I'm not that young anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's okay if you still watch Dora the Explorer. I mean, she's great. Yeah. I mean, I learned a lot of Spanish words from her. See? But yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Damn. Good on Nickelodeon. I I love the idea of Dora being like, do you see Taylor Swift in the audience? Okay, apparently Dora was really sassy. And (gasps) she was, what did she say? It was like all over the internet this morning. It was something like, do I need to explain to you where the end zone is? Or something to that effect. (laughs) It was like, wowzers. I love when cartoons do that. There's this whole like compilation on YouTube. Do you remember Arthur? Kind of. The aardvark, like on oh, PBS. Oh, right, right, right. He had glasses? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. There's a whole, like, series of clips of all the characters just being really, saying really, like, messed up <laughs> and sassy things. It's so funny. Amazing. But we're getting off track. Right, wait, sorry. When Jasmine was 11, she befriended a couple of the boys from her class, and she got to know their mom, Gwendolyn Beauregard. Jasmine's own mom, Lisa, had to travel a lot for work, and Gwendolyn became sort of a surrogate mom for mm. her. She'd often refer to her as her second mom, and the Beauregard household became her home away from home when her own mom was away. Mm -hmm. I read that Jasmine had somewhat of a rough upbringing, but it didn't elaborate on what exactly that entailed. But it does sound like her dad was out of the picture. Maybe there was a sense of abandonment there. I'm not sure. I'm just speculating. Her mom was working a lot and often had to travel, so Jasmine spent a lot of time with her second family. She eventually went to work at one of the Beauregard family businesses, a local market called Shopper's Corner, where she bagged groceries. (gasps) One thing in particular that stood out about Jasmine was her strong work ethic. It's something that came up a lot in my research. She worked hard, and it definitely paid off for her throughout her life. Shortly after graduating high school, Jasmine was ready to broaden her horizons. Small-town life just wasn't for her, and she set her sights on... Los Angeles. LA. And she was a little nervous because she comes from a town of a couple thousand and she's going to a city of almost four million people. Jasmine was very attractive. She had blonde hair. She was tan. And she knew that her looks could open doors for her. She was like, I have a certain look I think Hollywood might notice. She started getting gigs as a swimsuit model, Hmm. which eventually led to her getting invited to parties at the Playboy Mansion. According to friends, she loved being at the Playboy Mansion. It was definitely a side of life she had not experienced in small town Bonnie Dune. 
<laughs> I like how you sassily like shook your social. I, Bonnie Dune. Bonnie Dune. I love the name. <laughs> I think there is a common misperception or a stigma, I should say, regarding women who work for Playboy or mm-hmm. hang out at the Playboy Mansion. I've heard people refer to Playboy bunnies and Playboy playmates. They're actually different. I just learned that. Oh. Bunnies are, they like work in the nightclubs. Okay. Playmates are in the magazine. Okay. Yeah, so I just thought that was interesting. Um, But I hear people refer to them in some really derogatory ways, or people classify them as sex workers or strippers, and that is incorrect. Right. And even if they were sex workers or strippers- So what? That's still work. That's still a human being trying to make a living. So I just want to put that out there, because when news broke of this case, the media didn't really paint Jasmine in a great light, and some of the things they printed weren't even true. Like, it was reported she worked in a strip club. Not she true. never did. She never stripped. She never worked in a strip club. And again, even if she had, who cares? But it was just like, oh, she worked for Playboy. She liked the nightlife, blah, blah, blah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Jasmine auditioned for a centerfold in Playboy magazine, and although she wasn't chosen for that gig, she was hired as a Playboy girl of golf. Basically, Playboy would hold these golf tournaments like kind of across the country, and the girls of golf were the hostesses, essentially making sure the players were all having a great time. They'd hang out with the players, serve them shots along the course. It was like a giant golf party. Golf party. Golf party. <laughs> Is there such a thing? Apparently the Playboy ones were like like wild, like music and I mean everyone's getting drunk and partying. Like it was a big event. That's crazy. After doing the hostess gig for a while, Playboy asked Jasmine if she'd like to be one of the coordinators for the event. So a promotion, if you will. And she was hmm. excited. That was an even bigger opportunity. Yeah. And it had her organizing parties in both Los Angeles and Las Vegas. So she was back and forth between the two cities. I see. She also appeared in some commercials, mainly for swimsuits and also adult entertainment. So she's modeling. She's on TV. She's working for Playboy. She was making some good money. It was also in the early 2000s that she began dating Michael Cardosi. It's reported that the two married in 2003. However, they divorced in 2006 because Michael actually went to jail on a drug trafficking charge. Damn. However, the two stayed in touch while he was incarcerated. She often wrote him letters when he was in jail. And according to Michael's mom, he hoped he and Jasmine would get back together once he was released. Okay. And here's the thing about Jasmine that I think really speaks to the kind of person she was. She kept in touch with a lot of her exes and stayed on friendly terms. Oh, that's nice. And I, th- I do think that like that's tells indicative. you a lot yeah. about a person. And it's something that came up over and over in my research. She was a very kind, sincere person. Even the other women who knew her at Playboy all said she was so friendly, very soft-spoken. She wasn't stuck up at all. She didn't have an attitude. She just had this huge, bright smile that people naturally gravitated toward. And she was fun. She loved a party. She loved a good time. She's in her early 20s. She's living it up. Unfortunately, some people will take advantage when they encounter someone who is so naturally outgoing and caring. AJ Pathak, I'm probably saying his name wrong, uh, he's the former CEO of Playboy Golf. He would often tell the girls, you know, not everyone is who they say they are. And when you're at one of our Playboy parties, we can make sure you're safe. We've got people here to protect you. But... If you venture out, we can't control what happens. Like, you can't trust everybody. He was always warning the girls, like, hey, yes, it's fun in here, but, like, 
be careful. So, see, so he's saying like, don't leave with people or or take it outside or. I think probably that's along those lines, okay. or like you know, if you're advertising your Playboy status yeah. elsewhere, like other people could take advantage of that when we're not around to make sure that, that you're, you're protected. being safe. Yes. Or sorry, that you are safe. Yes, like, that you're protected, providing a safe environment. Exactly, that, I, that makes sense. I mean, that's a nice. Yeah, thing and because it, it was something that I'm sure the women encountered often, all the time. I'm sure. Around 2006, Jasmine began dating a man named Travis Heinrich, whom she met while he was working at a nightclub at the Hard Rock Hotel in Vegas. Mm. The two were on and off for about a year and a half, and they actually got engaged. The engagement lasted about five months when, according to Travis, they realized it wasn't going to work out between them, but they remained good friends. Oh, nice. And again. Indicative of the kind of of person person she she was. was. Around this same time, according to Jasmine's mom, Jasmine was beginning to back away from the modeling a bit, and she got her real estate license. Oh, damn. She was still organizing events for Playboy, so it wasn't like she'd done a complete career change, but she was just broadening her horizons. I mean, I kind of love that. You know, like, she does the the modeling thing and then mm-hmm. starts to pull back and is like, I'm going to plan events, I'm going to get do yeah, real estate. Yeah, she's diversifying those income yeah. streams. <laughs> diversifying her portfolio. You love it. You love to see it. By 2009, she was working with a friend of hers to open a gym. She was really into fitness and exercise, and so she wanted to start her own business. She had also been dating a man named Robert Hassman. And I know I keep bringing up, like, oh, she dated this guy, she dated this guy. It's because everyone kind of comes back into play later, and that's the only reason that I'm mentioning their names. Oh, that's fine. Robert Hassman was based in Las Vegas, and he was very wealthy. Like, private jet wealthy. Oh, wow. And he and Jasmine were on and off, it sounds like, for maybe a couple of years. That March, she was in Vegas, I believe, for an event at the Hawaiian Tropic Zone. And there she met Ryan Jenkins. The two began flirting. They hit it off. And Ryan asked for her phone number. So Jasmine put her number in his phone. And under the contact, she put her birth date, February 8th. Ryan sees it and is like, whoa, that's my birthday. I was born February 8th, 1977. So he was exactly four years older than she was. And they took this as a sign, like the fact that they shared a birthday, that they were meant to be together. It was destiny. (laughs) I just have this like image in my mind of them both looking at each other's birth certificates. And then it like they look up and there's just like light around them. It is interesting that like that's the thing that connected them. But I think that they were having such a good time and like really hitting it off. That was just like one more thing to add of like, oh, we have this in common. It's like when you're out in public with us with like one of our big cups and you see another person with a big cup and automatically you're like, like, I get you. Hey, Hey. girl, I see you across the street. The two met on March 16th, 2009. And two days later, on March 18th, the two got married at the Little White Chapel in Vegas. Wait, wait, just because you share a birthday does not. It does not equal going pretty quick. (laughs) It's pretty quick. And we'll talk a little bit about why it happened so quickly. But here she was, this model, a Playboy bunny. And Ryan told her that he was on a reality TV show that was going to start airing that summer. So they both kind of looked at the other one with stars in their eyes. However, they didn't really know each other. Obviously, you can't know a person in two days. But let's try to get to know Ryan a little bit better here. Okay. 
He was from Calgary, a wealthy oil city in Canada. Calgary ranks high as one of the top cities in Canada in terms of quality of life. It's like a, a nice area. Ryan's friends and family describe him as really funny and intelligent, very loving and trustworthy guy. Ryan had dreams of stardom and set his sights on Los Angeles. It was something he often spoke with his friends about. He was going to go to Hollywood. He was going to be famous. Hold on. Kate is refreshing her throat with some hydration water. Water. (laughs) Delicious and fresh. Delicious and fresh. (laughs) The slogan for water. So Ryan's friends weren't really surprised when he applied to appear on a new VH1 reality show called Megan Wants a Millionaire. What year was that? 2009. I think I remember that. Really? Yeah. Megan Wants a Millionaire. Did it air? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Part of it did. Oh. The show starred Megan Hauserman, a former Playboy model who had already competed in multiple reality TV shows. She won season three of Beauty and the Geek and was a fan favorite on Rock of Love with Brett Michaels, Rock of Love Charm School, and I Love Money. Oh my God, Rock of Love. Did you watch all of those? I did. <laughs> yes, I did. I don't know why they were all vying for that guy's attention. I've never seen any of them. Don't know why they were vying for Brett Michaels' attention. Well, I mean, I could see he's kind of like white trash hot. Like, I get that. I think he's just hot. Really? Brett Michaels is hot. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Says I, not Kevin. (laughs) Clearly. I don't know. All of those shows were just wild and crazy. And it was just for entertainment purposes. Yes. But yeah, insane. Kind of like in that era of Flavor of Love. Right. Then there was that weird one on MTV, like Tila Tequila. Wow, Kevin knows a lot of reality I was an MTV girly or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, continue. Yes, Megan. The premise of Megan Wants a Millionaire is basically the same as The Bachelorette, but all the contestants had to have a net worth of at least a million dollars. Wow. To find potential contestants, 51 Minds Entertainment, the production company VH1 used to produce the show, placed ads on the radio and threw casting parties at nightclubs. Ryan Jenkins attended one of these parties. Christopher Catalano, like Jordan Catalano, but Christopher. Who's Jordan Catalano? Oh my God, are you too young for my so-called life? Oh yeah, I didn't watch that. That was a little past my time. Oh God. Okay, I'm just going to have a moment with myself over here. Christopher Catalano, a senior casting producer for 51 Minds, said that Ryan had one of the best personalities on this planet. He just had this charisma. That was his quote. Producers really liked Ryan, and he moved pretty high up on the list of potential candidates. Viacom, now known as Paramount Global, owned VH1, and they hired the firm Collective Intelligence to do background checks on all its reality TV contestants. Paramount being famous players Lasky back in the 30s. <laughs> you, We've gonna, talked so much you're about You're going to bring that up every Every episode. time you mention Paramount, famous players Lasky. Viacom was Central Intelligence's biggest client, having done around half a million background checks for them. But Central Intelligence only covered records in the United States. And since Ryan was from Canada, the firm hired Straight Line International to run a check on him in Canada. Everything came back clear, and Ryan was cast as one of the potential suitors for Megan. Ryan boasted a $2.5 million net worth from his job as a real estate developer. But as Megan got to know him on the show, it became clear pretty quickly that maybe Ryan wasn't everything he said he was. Oh. For one, 
he wore a fake Rolex. If you're a millionaire and you are competing on a television show to try and win the heart of a former Playboy model who is looking to settle down with a rich guy, why would you wear a fake Rolex? You're yeah. worth millions. Bring for the you real thing. You can afford a real one. Have you ever ha- worn a Rolex, Kate? Do I look like I've ever worn a I'm Rolex? I'm just asking. I I'm a- sitting in a closet. <laughs> <laughs> We've got G-Shocks and Fossils. The the brands of watches. Okay. The- <laughs> I didn't Sorry. know what that was. My fr- So I had a friend in London. I haven't talked to him in a while, but he was visiting Chicago and he had a Rolex. And he let me wear it. And he was like, that's worth $15,000. What? And I was like, I have 15K on my wrist. Also, who just like is like, here, here, borrow my watch. It's worth 15 grand. Well, it, no, he that? didn't let me borrow it. He was like, you can put it on your wrist if you want. And that's I was like, so okay. Weird. <laughs> it is that's weird. That's so weird. <laughs> I like it, though. <laughs> okay. Aside from the Rolex, mm-hmm. that wasn't the only weird thing. Okay. Ryan only brought one pair of pants for the entire five-week shoot. What? Ew. I don't even have words. Like, how are you bringing only one pair of pants for five weeks? Some could argue that perhaps he didn't want to get his hopes up and thinking he would make it to the final, so he packed light in case he was eliminated early. This is weird. This is weird to me. Super weird. What about undies? Let's hope that he brought multiple pairs of underwear. He didn't bring any. I didn't read any articles on it. Fair enough. (laughs) If you're trying to win this thing show some confidence pack a couple extra pairs of pants like and your real rolex yeah maybe he was afraid someone would steal it maybe but it's just it's weird it is weird it became clear to megan that ryan was not a millionaire oh megan and in fact he wasn't the only contestant that had lied about his income one of the other men was waiting on his grandfather to die before he inherited his money so he didn't actually have any money yet (laughs) that's fucked up it's really fucked up (laughs) I'm gonna be a millionaire. I'm just waiting for my grandpa to die. Basically, that's exactly Fuck. what it was. That's messy. And another contestant did not have nearly the 1.1 million he claimed. Mm. So if the background checks didn't catch these inaccuracies, what else might they have missed? Yeah, so we're finding out that he's not what he says he is. Ryan is not a millionaire. Man. He only has one pair of pants. I want that on a t-shirt. <laughs> Megan liked Ryan. She was able to overlook the fact that he was not as wealthy as he claimed because he was so sweet, she said. One night in her hotel room, she looked him up on Facebook, as anyone does when they are having a crush, when they've got a crush on someone, you got to check their social media, and she liked what she saw. The two actually began a secret relationship outside of the show, Hmm. and they had to hide it from producers so as not to jeopardize the series. They talked on the phone, they texted, he wrote her love letters, and Megan was really falling for him. She told him she was going to pick him as the winner of the show and they would be together. They wouldn't have to keep it a secret anymore. Megan went to the producers and told them she was going to pick Ryan in the finals, and the producer said, mm, not so fast. They told her Ryan wasn't likable in his interviews and viewers would not want Ryan to win. They essentially told her without telling her that she should not choose Ryan. I mean, can, well, of course they can. They're producing the show. Exactly. And it's kind of when Megan realized, oh, I don't actually make the decision. In the second to last episode, it was down to Ryan and two others. Megan wore an earpiece in which producers were feeding her a script. So she was just repeating what they were telling her to say. She hadn't had a chance to warn Ryan 
My phone fell. Sorry. Oh, I thought maybe it vibrated. Uh, no. <laughs> it just, how the, it just like urged forward and fell. Kate, I think ghost. the demons are back. Well, that mirror is right there and that's where the portal is. Oh, right. I forgot we summoned in all those weird episodes we talked about. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> weird episodes. I just mean like the haunted stuff. <laughs> She hadn't had a chance to warn Ryan that he would be eliminated, but she thought there was only three days left of filming and she would just call him once production wrapped and explain everything and then they could be together. Mm -hmm. When Megan announced that Ryan was eliminated, he was absolutely shocked. Of course. Yeah. She'd been telling him up until that point that he was the guy for her. Yeah. He shook his head in disbelief. He said, no, that's not true. He refused to accept the outcome and was understandably upset. And so was Megan because she really liked him. Back in his hotel room, Ryan began calling Megan incessantly. But she couldn't answer because the producers were with her. And she was getting ready to fly to Mexico where they were shooting the finale. Ryan grew impatient. He decided he needed to get away and he flew to Las Vegas. Two days later, he tried calling Megan again. And this time she was able to answer. Megan was happy to hear from him. She was eager to explain that the decision had not been up to her and that she did, in fact, want to be with him. And once she was done shooting the show, they could finally be together. But before she got a chance to say any of that, Ryan dropped a bomb. He told Megan, quote, I have met the love of my life and I married. His new bride, of course, was Jasmine Fiore. All right. Here's where it makes sense. Mm -hmm. He was just doing it to, you know, in retaliation. Of being... Of being rejected. Rejected. And Jasmine... But not really. I mean, but he really wasn't. Exactly. And Jasmine was a Playboy bunny, and Megan was a former Playboy model. Right. So I think there was that aspect to it as well. Oh, man. That makes me sad for Jasmine to be used like that in that situation, when she probably actually really liked him. Oh... I read one report that Jasmine agreed to marry Ryan so quickly after meeting because he needed a green card. Oh. I don't know if that's true. She could very well have thought she had found the one. And and again, they did hit it off. They There was an attraction there. But I could see him pressing the green card issue and that weighing into the decision to get married. To do that. I see. So it was kind of like a double... But I don't know if, if that conversation is actually gotcha. true. Gotcha. But it is interesting because on Megan Wants a Millionaire, Ryan told Megan he could only work in the United States if he got married. However, visas are a thing. Yeah. But having a criminal record can keep you from obtaining a visa. And as it turned out, Ryan did have a criminal record. Really? In 2007, Ryan was convicted of a 2005 incident involving his then-girlfriend. He punched her in the head, knocking her down, causing abrasions and bleeding from her nose. He was charged with assault, causing bodily harm, and sentenced to 15 months probation, 80 hours of community service, and was ordered to undergo counseling for anger management, domestic violence, and sexual addiction. And a restraining order was also put in place. Oh my God. How did the background checks not catch all that? Right? A pretty serious charge that never came up in those checks. Prior to that, Mm -hmm. in 1999, Ryan went to the house of an ex-girlfriend and broke a picture on the wall simply because he had seen her with another man. And I hear you asking if he had this criminal record, how did he get into the U.S.? I have a theory on that, but I'm not going to tell you just yet. Were these in Canada? 
Sorry. And Canada. <laughs> and Canada. <laughs> yes, those two were Canadian. Were, were in Canada. Okay. But again, they hired a firm. They got that firm to internationally to check, check his record. Yes. They just didn't do a very good job. It didn't take long once they were married for Jasmine to realize Ryan didn't have any money. He had made her believe he was a millionaire and was going to take care of her, but he couldn't even afford to pick up the check at dinner. Like, literally, his card would get declined. He explained it away by saying that all his money was tied up in Canada and he was having trouble getting it into the United States. Do people have trouble getting money from Canada to the United States? I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, international accounts, you can usually transfer between them. Yeah. We all know that Ryan didn't have much money, but his father did. Oh. His dad, Dan, was a prominent architect, and he was a millionaire. Sometimes Ryan would work for his dad on projects, but as far as I can tell, Ryan did not have his own business or anything like that. He claimed to be an entrepreneur, but I couldn't find any evidence of that. Doesn't mean he wasn't. I just couldn't find anything to verify that. Mm-hmm. Jasmine quickly realized that Maybe she had made a mistake. This guy just wasn't who he said he was. And I watched an interview with Ryan's friends where they kind of talked down about Jasmine, saying that she had high expectations and that she just wanted a rich guy. And all the couple's problems stemmed from Ryan trying his best to satisfy her, but he just couldn't meet her expectations. But they're basing their opinion of Jasmine on what Ryan has told them. So we have to keep that in mind. And I don't think the problem was that he didn't have any money. I think the problem came from the fact that Ryan lied to her. Mm -hmm. And he was just mooching off of her, basically. She had money. She earned it. She drove a Mercedes. She lived in a penthouse. Financially, she was just fine on her own. Mm -hmm. But when you get with a person that says one thing and you find out that actually the opposite is true, then yeah, that's going to create some problems. That's cause for concern. Ryan was also feeling like maybe the marriage was a mistake. Two weeks after the wedding, he texted Megan Hauserman the following message. I got caught up after the show and made a hasty decision with a girl, as you know, but it's very obvious I am not with my soulmate here. If you'd like to see if there could be still something, we should talk. His syntax in that drives me crazy, but I wanted to... You read it. Read, you read, read it exactly. right. That's the point where you go, maybe it's time for an annulment. You realize, hey, we rushed this a little too fast. Maybe we made a mistake. For Jasmine's part, it seems she wanted to at least try and make the marriage work. She was asking her friends for advice like, hey, Ryan gets angry if I so much talk to another guy. Like, how do you handle that situation? It seems she wasn't ready to throw in the towel yet. And like she's trying to talk to her friends and probably also get a gauge of like, is this normal? Like, is this what husbands do? You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. you're trying to get some backup there. And Ryan seemed determined to be with a Playboy bunny. If he wasn't going to be with Megan, it was Jasmine. If he was having trouble with Jasmine, he would text Megan. And Megan did care for him, although I think she kept her distance because he was married now. But the two did stay in touch. On April 22nd, 2009, so they've been married about a month at this point, Ryan and Jasmine were at an event in Las Vegas, and they were hanging out by a pool. Travis Heinrich was also there. He was her former fiancé, and they had decided to just be friends. And Jasmine went over to talk to Travis. Some reports say she kissed him. Others say they were just talking. And the ones that say she kissed him don't elaborate on whether it was like a little peck on the cheek or if it was something more. Mm -hmm. So we don't really know. But they were talking. 
Ryan saw this and walked up to Jasmine and began arguing with her. The two started yelling, and then Ryan punched her in the arm with so much force that it knocked her into the pool. Fully clothed, purse, phone, everything into the water. It's awful. Ryan was arrested on a domestic violence charge and spent a night in jail. And his court date was set for December. So he wasn't like sitting in jail until then. Sure. Just like, here's your court date, right. show up. Jasmine's mom, Lisa, said Ryan was extremely jealous of her daughter. And he didn't like that she kept in touch with her ex-boyfriends. According to her former fiancé, Travis, Jasmine discovered that Ryan was going through her phone every night and looking to see who she was texting. This has happened to me, and it is fucked up. So a guy has mm-hmm. done that to you? Yeah. Oh, gross. Jasmine actually got a second phone line that she hid from Ryan so that he wouldn't go through it. But Ryan wasn't exactly Mr. Monogamy over here. Lisa, Jasmine's mom, mm-hmm said that when Jasmine was away, Ryan would use her Mercedes to bring women back to their apartment, and he would hide Jasmine's stuff so it would look like he lived alone. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Jasmine, understandably, was scared of Ryan. Although they shared a residence in Los Angeles, they began living mostly apart. Lisa said that in May, Jasmine had gotten the marriage annulled, but there are no records of it. I think it was probably something she was definitely thinking about, And had probably expressed to her mom, like, I'm getting an annulment and, you know, I got to get away from this guy. But there's no evidence that it actually occurred. Jasmine dyed her hair brown and, according to Lisa, took down her modeling website and had her last name legally changed to Kincaid. Playboy kept trying to contact her to see if she was going to participate in the golf event that year, but she didn't respond. It was like she was trying to separate herself from who she had been. In June... Ryan called up Megan and asked her to dinner. As someone who still cared for Ryan, she agreed. When she saw him, she noticed he'd lost a lot of weight, his skin was pale, he was shaky and seemed paranoid. It wasn't the Ryan she knew. He spent the evening complaining about Jasmine, saying that she was ruining his life. What? Yeah. It's like his own delusion of what he thought or what he expected or wanted from her, as opposed to, like, what was actually happening. It's crazy to me, like, they they met and married so soon, and there seemed to be some kind of reasoning, aside from attraction, mm-hmm. that they would do that, mm-hmm. of course. But then it also seems to me, like, no, this was also, like, at the beginning, kind of like an intense relationship. It seems that way, yeah. yeah. And I think, again, there was some feeling there, And Jasmine wanted to try and make that work, but Ryan definitely seems like he went into it for all the wrong reasons. Exactly. And it's all coming out. Right. On the series The Playboy Murders, which I'll link, there's an episode on this case. And in it, Megan said Ryan was obsessed with Jasmine not leaving him because he wants to win. This is what Megan said. She said Ryan can't accept any rejection. Holly Madison, who hosts the series, said, quote, I think a lot of men, particularly Ryan in this case, want to date a Playboy model or to have that kind of trophy on his arm arm, to get a lot of attention or reflect that attention back on them. They're really attracted to that, but they're also simultaneously very, very jealous, insecure, and can't handle it. Yeah. Megan told Ryan he needed to get away from Jasmine and just get some space. And so she convinced him to appear on another reality show. It was the third season of I Love Money, and it was going to be shooting in Mexico. So it would give him a chance to get away for a while. 
The contestants on I Love Money are people that have competed on previous reality shows, and Megan being in that world already and having worked with that production company, she had some pull there and was able to get him on. The show began shooting in July of 2009, and Ryan was outwardly obsessed with winning the $250,000 prize. He thought that would be what he needed to win Jasmine over, and he talked about it constantly, so much that the producers were even, like, working that as a storyline into the show. Oh, weird. Yeah, like saying, like, oh, look at this guy who's obsessed with his model wife. It becomes very eerie later. What was the point of the show, I Love Money? It wasn't a dating show, was I, it? No, I don't think so. I think it was some kind of where they had to do challenges like or whatever. Show yeah. And then, okay, got you. But again, never saw it. I was like, that'd be weird if it was a dating show and he's like, I'm doing this for my love. No, it wasn't a dating show that I'm aware of. It was just like, I love money. They wanted to get money. Get rich people to compete <laughs> against each other. Just get money. That's all I know. Get money. <laughs> hey, hey. So Ryan would call her, call Jasmine uh-huh. over and over from the set saying, I'm going to win this and you and I are going to have the life I've always, I've always promised. But then in the same conversation, he would start in with the accusations. Where were you last night? What were you doing? Who are you with? Jasmine did not want to be with Ryan, but she didn't know how to break it to him. She was scared of him, and the most dangerous time for a woman in an abusive relationship is when she tries to leave. So she confided in her friend Travis, saying, I'm in over my head, and I don't know how I can get out. Mm -hmm. And I think it's such an important point. It's easy to look from the outside and go, oh, just leave them. Mm -hmm. But it's not that simple. Jasmine was really smart and independent. She was a strong woman, but that doesn't make getting away from an obsessive partner any easier. Right. The guy who used to go through my phone, Mm -hmm. I was terrified of him. I knew I wanted to leave long before I actually did. And once I finally did leave, Mm -hmm. I felt like I was in hiding because I didn't want him to find me. I wasn't on social media. I moved and didn't tell him where. It's a scary time. And Jasmine was terrified. And she was such a kind-hearted person that she truly didn't want to hurt him. And Ryan kept telling her things that would convince her to give him another chance. Because this is what they do. Yeah. On July 27th, Ryan emailed Jasmine saying, I'm going to do better. I can't live without you. I need you. According to Lisa, Ryan wrote Jasmine poems and claimed he'd had this spiritual awakening. In sort of a last-ditch effort to win her over, Ryan convinced Jasmine to accompany him to a poker tournament in San Diego. It was a charity game, and the contestants were all quasi-celebrities, so like reality TV contestants and stuff. On August 13th, the two arrived at the L'Auberge del Mar. It is a swanky four-star hotel. They had taken Jasmine's Mercedes for the trip and arrived at the hotel that afternoon at 3.28 p.m. Their room was on the ground floor, and they're seen on the security camera going into their room, and then at 6.25 p.m., they leave the room, and they're really dressed up for this event. He's in a suit. She's wearing dress and heels. And they head to the poker tournament, which was about a 10-minute drive away at another hotel. But things between them were not going well. They spent the night arguing, and Jasmine had had enough. She began texting with Robert Hassman. He was the wealthy guy from Las Vegas that she had dated prior to marrying Ryan. They were still close and kept in touch. She sent a text to Robert saying, send a plane for me, come get me, I am done with Ryan Jenkins. Ryan and Jasmine began arguing. Presumably, he found out she was contacting Robert. They decided to leave the event. They were like, we should probably get away from here. And they went to a nightclub called the Ivy in downtown San Diego. 
They got there around 12.30 a.m., and there, several people witnessed them arguing yet again. At some point during the evening, Ryan took Jasmine's phone and texted Robert, suck it. Ah. That is the last text message Robert received from Jasmine's phone. No, 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 no. The two left the Ivy around 1.30 a.m. and went back to the hotel where the poker tournament was because they had left Jasmine's car there, so they needed to pick it up. And they left that hotel around 2.30 a.m. Jasmine is never seen alive again by any witnesses or on any surveillance footage. Ryan isn't seen again until 4.38 a.m. when he is caught on the security camera at the LaBerge running to his room. The LaBerge was only a 10-minute drive from the poker tournament, which they left at around 12.30, so, or sorry, which they left around 2.30, so there's two hours in there unaccounted, unaccounted for. for yeah. Guests in the surrounding rooms said they heard a man and woman fighting in Ryan and Jasmine's room. A few minutes later, Ryan walks out into the hallway. He's taking off his jacket at this point, so he just has a sleeveless shirt and pants on. He's carrying an ice bucket in his left hand and another object in his right. There's a large wardrobe in the hallway against the wall opposite Jasmine and Ryan's room. Ryan places the object in his right hand on the very top of that wardrobe. And it's tall, so he has to like really reach up to place it there. And then he goes and gets ice and heads back into the room, walking very casually. There's no sense of urgency. The next time Ryan appears on the security camera is at 6.24 a.m. He exits the room carrying an armload of clothing, toiletries, a pair of shoes. There's a clothes hanger that's just dangling from this pile in his arms. And he's he's having trouble carrying it all. He returns a few minutes later, empty-handed, and goes back into the room. At 6.51 a.m., he exits the room again, hands in his pockets. He doesn't return until 9.09 a.m., a little over two hours later. And when he does, he's wearing a different shirt. He now has on a long sleeve shirt. Eleven minutes later, he exits the room again, and that is the last time Ryan is seen on the hotel's security footage. Mm -hmm. Several hours later, he can be seen on surveillance footage just after 5 p.m. So this is August 14th. Mm Returning to the apartment he had shared with Jasmine. It's only about a two, two and a half hour drive from San Diego to Los Angeles, depending on traffic. But it took him almost eight hours to get back because he left that hotel at nine. Right. He's coming back at 5 p.m. Shortly after, he's seen exiting into the parking garage with a large suitcase, which he puts into his vehicle and leaves. The white Mercedes is missing. Hmm. On the morning of Saturday, August 15th, a man in Buena Park went out to a dumpster to collect cans, but instead found a suspicious-looking suitcase. His gut told him to open it. And when he did, he saw what he thought was the body of a child. But it wasn't a child. It was Jasmine. I mentioned at the top of the episode that her fingers and teeth had been removed. When authorities ran her DNA, nothing came up, so they didn't immediately know who this person was. That evening, Ryan filed a missing persons report on Jasmine. He told police the two of them had returned home from San Diego around 8.30 p.m. the night before, so August 14th, and he said Jasmine dropped him off but then left to run some errands and never returned. We already know that's not true because he's on the security camera arriving back at 5.02 p.m. and Jasmine is not with him. During the autopsy, the ME discovered this unidentified female had breast implants. 
And I did not know this, but all breast implants have a serial number. What? So when they ran the serial number, Jasmine's info came up. Oh, my God. Isn't that wild? That's insane. Yeah. And also, like, really smart to well, yeah. do. Yeah. Yeah. I had no idea. But it makes sense. Yeah. 100%. And on August 18th, she was finally identified. Her official cause of death was strangulation. The autopsy also revealed semen found inside Jasmine. And when they ran the DNA, they found a match. But it wasn't Ryan's. <gasps> it was Michael Cardosi's, her ex-husband, who just days before Jasmine's murder had been released from prison on parole in San Diego. Obviously, detectives had to talk to him, just got out of prison. He's in San Diego. His DNA is present in her. And it turned out that Jasmine had driven to San Diego to meet with him when he was released. The two were so excited to see each other, and they did have sex. But investigators were able to quickly rule him out because he was wearing an ankle monitor and had never gone to the hotel she had stayed at with Ryan, nor had he been anywhere near the poker tournament. Mm -hmm. When detectives ran Jasmine's info, they found the missing persons report that had been filed by Ryan three days prior. So they knew they needed to talk to him, but... Unfortunately, he already had such a head start. They tracked down the residence he'd shared with Jasmine in L.A., but when they searched it, they found he had cleared all his stuff out. They learned he kept a storage unit in Las Vegas where he kept a boat, but when they checked the unit, the boat was gone. Oh. They also discovered that when Ryan got back to L.A. on August 14th, he FedExed both his and Jasmine's wedding rings to Las Vegas to be cleaned, but he never picked them up. Okay. When detectives learned of their stay at Lauberge, they obtained search warrants, combing through all that security footage. They inspected the room, but it had already been cleaned by housekeeping, and the housekeeping staff said they didn't find anything out of the anything ordinary. Weird. Okay. And they were eager to find out what that object was that Ryan placed on top on of top. that wardrobe. It was the phone receiver from their hotel room. Housekeeping had said there was nothing out of the ordinary, but they missed the fact that the phone had been removed. So it leads me to believe that maybe they missed other things. Yeah. When police walked out onto the patio from the room, so like they're on the ground floor, there are doors that open out into this patio. And there they found blood and a strand of long brown hair, and both were a DNA match for Jasmine. Oh, man. That patio backed up to the parking lot, and there were no security cameras back there. Oh, no. Detectives came up with their theory that after picking up Jasmine's Mercedes at the hotel where the poker tournament was held, mm -hmm. the two continued arguing. He likely began beating her inside of her car, and although they hadn't yet located the car, they would eventually be proven right. They believed Jasmine was unable to walk on her own after the severe beating, so Ryan was going to have to drag her inside. Of course, he couldn't just bring her in through the hotel lobby, so... He was going to bring her in through the patio doors, but they were locked, which is why he's seen running to the room on the security footage, because he has to go unlock those doors. Witnesses heard the two arguing in the room, as I mentioned before, so Jasmine was still alive at this point, which is why Ryan had to remove the phone because he didn't want her to call the police while he went to get ice. So he beats her in the car. They get back to the hotel. He's going to bring her in through the patio, but the door's locked. Right. How does she get to the room? So remember on the security footage where yeah. he's seen running? running. He's run he runs down the hallway inside oh, to the room. to unlock unlocks the those patio, patio doors. and then brings her in. I'm yep. sorry. I get it. I get yep. it. 
Why did he get ice? We don't know. Possibly to stop Jasmine's swelling. He had, in fact, broken her nose. Or maybe he wanted a cold drink. We don't know. We do know that he'd already taken her cell phone because he texted Robert Hassman, suck it. Suck it. So Jasmine had no way of calling for help. It was while he was back in the room that he strangled Jasmine to death. And again, this is all what the police have put together. Detective Greg Pelton says on the Playboy murders that he believes Ryan then put Jasmine's body in the bathtub, cut off her fingers, and flushed them down the toilet. He also knocked out her teeth, though there were some teeth fragments still in her mouth and some in the suitcase. Ryan removed her clothes and stuffed her body in one of the suitcases they had brought with them for the trip. This was not a big suitcase. It's a carry-on. It's like two feet by two feet, which is why he's seen carrying a bunch of clothes in his arms on the security camera. Okay. On his way back to L.A., Ryan threw the suitcase into a dumpster behind an apartment complex in Buena Park, which is like halfway between San Diego and L.A. Okay. It's just so cold. And callous. So like, gross. What the fuck? To put a person in a suitcase and then put that suitcase he in really a He really went full over yeah, 100. All in. Yeah. God. And for someone who had filed a missing persons report on his wife, he didn't seem all that interested in finding her. A detective from the missing persons division got in contact with Ryan. But he said, oh, yeah, I reported her missing, but I got to get back to Canada. I've got visa issues. So what? Okay. So they, he left the country. They knew he was on the run okay. and that he was likely headed to Canada. Yeah. When Ryan's picture was shown on TV as a suspect in Jasmine's death, Megan Hauserman was shocked. She didn't believe that the Ryan she knew had actually committed murder. And she was terrified, afraid that he would come looking for her. Mm -hmm. She did not leave her apartment the entire time that he was on the run. I mean, fair enough. Yeah. Psycho. I, think about that. Like... You know all about their situation, and now he's killed her. Is Are you and next? And to see it on the news. like Yeah. Just, like, see his oh picture. Oh, my God. I can't even imagine so what scary. that's like. So scary. So scary. I would just lock the doors, turn the lights off, and hide under the bed. I would be so scared. Ryan's SUV was found on August 19th in Blaine, Washington, which mm. is located on the Canadian border. The boat trailer was attached, but the boat was gone. The United States Coast Guard spotted a man speeding in a boat at night at high seas along the Canadian border. They tried to stop him, but unfortunately, they lost sight of him. Fuck. Just that scene, when you picture that, it's like dark and uh, it's high seas and like some guy's speeding on it. Like, that's just fucking crazy and terrifying. Oh, yeah, because his boat wasn't at the... At the, in the storage unit. Storage yeah, unit. he got it out. He got it. Ryan then parked his boat at a marina half a mile from the Canadian border and literally just walked into Canada in an area where there is no border crossing. It's literally just a ditch that separates the two countries. And that is how I think Ryan got into the U.S. in the first place, going back to earlier, because I don't think he would have been able to get a visa with his record. So how does he know he can just cross the border there undetected? I feel like he already knew about that spot. Because I don't know how else he would have gotten into the U.S. Ryan then had his younger half-sister pick him up and drive him to Hope, Canada, which is an ironic name for this case. Ryan stayed in the car while his half-sister checked him into the Thunderbird Motel, paying in cash for a three-night stay. Once he was settled into the room, she left. 
On August 21st, the manager saw Ryan talking on the phone outside. He said he looked exhausted and did not look like the picture that had been shown on TV, so he didn't recognize him. At 11.30 a.m. on August 23rd, when Ryan failed to check out, the manager, Kevin Walker, checked the room. And inside, he found Ryan, deceased, hanging by his own belt from the clothing rack in the closet. Oh my god, that's ghoulish. When authorities arrived, they found a note on Ryan's computer titled, Last Will and Testament. I'm going to read just a bit of it. Okay. I'm sure everyone feels I'm a monster. Let me tell you that Jasmine was in fact a far greater monster than I could ever be. I merely wanted to love someone. My heart and love for her was pure and powerful. It drove me and brought out the very best in me. Jasmine was the key to my happiness. He never confessed to the crime in the letter, so investigators needed more evidence in order to close the case. Three days later, on August 26, Jasmine's white Mercedes was found abandoned in a parking lot just a mile from her apartment in L.A. The interior was covered in blood, and a lot of it looked like it had been there had been an attempt to wipe it away. But the majority of it had pooled in the back seat and soaked through, leading detectives to believe that after he put Jasmine in the suitcase, he put the suitcase in the back seat. Just the thought of him driving with his murder victim in the car with him, like not even in the trunk, not that that's better, but like she's right there. And he drove at least an hour with her because it would have taken about an hour to get there. Oh, my God. I don't even know, like, what has to be going through your brain? It feels like something flips or snaps. Something. You know what I mean? And people just go into a certain mode of, one, just, you know, covering things up and, you know, f- figuring out a plan to do that. And it's almost like there's no emotion in it. Yeah. And you see the escalation he went through in life, too, yeah. with the first of, like, he punches or breaks that photo frame right. at his ex-girlfriend's. And then he punches the next girlfriend. The girl. And then, it, the yeah. It just keeps escalating. escalating. And no one caught that? No one it's had really eyes on this guy? It's, it is. I mean, yeah. I don't even know. Ryan's entire family believed wholeheartedly that he was innocent and his dad even gave a statement to the calgary herald and when i read it first i felt really bad for his parents because ryan was clearly lying to them about the relationship and he had painted jasmine as this terrible person who would abandon him and go off with other men he told the same story to police that he and jasmine arrived back in la and she left to run an errand and never returned that's what he had told his dad Mm -hmm. and again we know that that's just not true His dad even defends the pool incident. And this is where I'm like, okay, let's not defend domestic assault. Like, no, there were witnesses. He was arrested. Mm -hmm. But his dad thought it was outrageous that he got arrested for, quote, pushing someone into a pool. He punched. He punched her into a pool. I'm not going to read his dad's statement, but I am going to link it. Okay. And of course, no one wants to believe that their loved one could commit murder. Ryan's half-sister was also dragged through the media since she was the one who picked him up at the border, but she said she believed he was innocent. And I do feel he probably thought she was just helping him get away from the media attention. Mm -hmm. Ryan also told his family that he was in contact with all of the authorities the whole way through, which was also a lie. 
The only consolation Jasmine's family had after Ryan killed himself is that they wouldn't have to go through a trial. But, of course, he also wouldn't face the consequences of what he did. And the fallout among production was wide-reaching. VH1 distanced itself from Megan Once a Millionaire, stating it was an outside production produced by 51 Minds Entertainment, and they took the show off the air after three episodes. Ryan's season of I Love Money never aired. Megan Hauserman's reality TV career, as well as her modeling career, ended abruptly. No one wanted to be associated with her since she was linked to Ryan. That's not on her, though. Right. There's even more. So Erica Wirth, the founder of Collective Intelligence, the company that did the background checks, yeah. contacted Straight Line International, who had run the check on Ryan since he was in Can- since he was Canadian. Yeah. She requested any and all documents related to his background check, and Viacom began calling Erica, wanting to know... What went wrong here? Right. How had Ryan's criminal record slipped through the cracks? But she said Straight Line International had stopped responding to her. They fucked up. 51 Minds then distanced itself from Collective Intelligence, and Collective Intelligence claimed Ryan's record went unnoticed due to an error by a Canadian court clerk. Viacom, which had been Collective Intelligence's biggest client, cut ties with the firm, and Erica Wirth laid off 13 employees, almost oh her God. entire staff. Collective Intelligence sued Straight Line and won, with Straight Line paying almost a million-dollar settlement. And as for 51 Minds Entertainment, no one wanted to be associated with them. VH1 demanded that 51 reimburse the network $12 million for the cancellation of I Love Money. Erica Worth spent years rebuilding her business and says she now does supplemental background checks at her own expense. She said she's noticed that now networks and studios don't seem to worry too much about the budget when it comes to getting a thorough report. They don't care about the cost. They're just like, give us everything. Mark Cronin, who co-founded 51 Minds, went on to create the series Below Deck for Bravo and says Jasmine's case affects every conversation he has when it comes to approving a contestant or cast member and said that even after the show stops taping, they keep in touch with everyone and help anyone who might need professional help get counseling. Forensic pathologist Dr. Michael Wellner spoke with CBS News regarding this case. He was not involved in her case, but he's someone that they would apparently bring on to provide insight into these situations. And he said, quote, this is the kind of tragedy that fathers should talk to their sons about being able to learn to tolerate rejection. I tried to find a quote from Jasmine because I, I wanted to end her story in her words Unfortunately, I couldn't find anything from her, but I did find this quote from her childhood friend, Sarah Jansen. She told ABC News, Oh God, Jasmine was just exciting. She brought a new lease on life to us up here. She wanted big things in her life, and she was going to go get them. That's sweet. And that is the case of Jasmine Fiore. How tragic. It's awful. That's awful. And there was such a big fallout for a lot of people after that. Yeah, people lost their jobs. People lost a lot of money. I mean, it just, it feels like to me, like it was on straight line. Well, I mean, it was a court clerk error. Was it? Oh. I mean, I feel like all of those entities were blaming the next person. They were all blaming each other. Yeah, it was like, like, well. VH1 was like, it's 51 Minds' fault. And Viacom was like, it's Collective Intelligence's fault. And Collective Intelligence is like, it's Straight Line's fault. Like, I feel like no one said, oh, my God, a life has been lost here. Right. And then it all became about, like, money and... And blame and, and who was at fault. And... fault. When in real... I mean, it's... Yeah, that's insane. So Entertainment Weekly came out with an article about this case yeah. titled The Murder That Changed Reality TV. 
And I don't know that it necessarily has. I do think some good came from it in terms of like how they conduct background checks and things. But there's no standardized vetting system for contestants. And those reality shows have to see so many people and cast so many people. And like I feel like the early 2000s were the heyday of it with like Survivor and Big Brother. And even though those things exist, it's not as big as it used to be. Mm -hmm. But I just don't think that when it comes to reality TV, I mean, again, like Megan, who was the lead of that show, didn't even realize that she wasn't going to get to make the decision at the end. Like, I just don't think that those things are taken into consideration necessarily. And as Holly Madison put it on the Playboy murders, she said, you know, the producers want the story and they're looking for a story. And so they're going to put the contestants in certain situations to say like, oh, well, so-and-so said this about you. Now, you know, what are you going to do? And then yeah. they film that and yeah. none of it is real. I, I think everyone knows that. But like, now. it's just really sad because had they caught that and the thing is, I'm not even sure his family knew that he was arrested in Canada. Right. They seem to not know. And if they did know and say all the stuff about him later, that's fucked up. Yeah. Because they talk about, like, how wonderful he is. So if they knew that he had beaten his ex-girlfriend and was arrested for that, then, like, why are you defending this guy? But I'd, I'm not even sure they knew. Right. And that's what's so scary is, like, everyone said he was just the nicest guy. Right. All charm, all charisma. And also it's kind of like without the reality TV thing, it doesn't necessarily mean this wouldn't have happened. Exactly. You know? Yeah. It speaks to, and I don't want to go too much into this because I I don't want to make a blanket statement about everyone who tries to compete in reality TV. Sh- oh, or sure. Once, you know? Yeah, yeah. But I think it does speak to the type of person who applies for those types of shows. And when that becomes their driving force and like his friends were saying, that's all he wanted. He wanted to be a star and he wanted to be famous and he was determined to do, you know, these reality TV shows. And it does take a certain personality to be attracted to that kind, kind of, of job. Attention, yeah. So I do think there's an aspect of that to it. Sure. And it's unfortunately so so horrific and tragic and definitely did not need to happen no it just it's awful but have a great week everyone yeah um if you want to give us a comment on this episode you can do so on instagram facebook or youtube at horrorwood podcast you can shoot us an email at horrorwoodpodcast at gmail.com or you can hop on over to Patreon like Dana and Becca did this past week and sign up at patreon.com slash horrorwoodpodcast. Happy Valentine's, everybody. Hap- and don't do murder. Don't do murder. Happy Valentine's. Tines. Mm-hmm.